John chapter 2. This is uh, the story of Jesus' first public miracle, though the, the, the first miracle is semi-public. It's semi-public. Not everybody there actually knows what's going on with this miracle at the wedding in Cana in Galilee. But it is regarded as Jesus' first miracle. And it's kind of a strange way to make your debut. Uh, I often think when I read this passage that Jesus could have benefited from a good PR agent. Um, he needed management, I guess, to t- let him know what would be, you know, you, you want to make a first impression, you want to make it pop. And Jesus picks this, um, the, the, this opportunity to, to do a miracle that seems really kind of strange. I mean, basically, there's a guy who's going to be brought into public embarrassment because he's run out of wine at this wedding, and Jesus saves a guy from social, dis- social embarrassment is at one level what this miracle is about. And yet, as we get into it, I think we're going to find it's about so much more than that. And it is truly, as John says in his gospel in verse 11, it is a way in which Jesus reveals his glory. And he goes on to reveal that glory in the second story in John chapter 2 that we're going to talk about tonight, which is Jesus cleansing the temple of the money changers. So we're going to read both those stories. And the reason we're going to read both those stories and not just do one or the other is because in verse 12... They're connected together after this. That Greek word after this means these two stories are connected and should be read together. And if you think about what we're talking about this semester, the real Jesus, I'm going to make the point at the end of this sermon that it's tempting for us to like the Jesus of the wedding feast, but not like the Jesus who turns over the tables of the money changers. Or other people really like the Jesus who turns over the money changers uh, tables, but they don't like the Jesus of the wedding feast. But the real Jesus is both. And John wants to make sure that we understand that these two things go together. If you want to understand who Jesus really is, you have to know how both of these stories reveal his glory. So let's read. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, the NIV says, and actually that word dear isn't in the Greek at all. It says, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time, more literally translated, my hour has not yet come. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. 
After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, literally out of reeds. And he drove all of them from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written in the Old Testament, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews, that is the Jewish leadership, demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. In that very tail end of chapter 2, we're going to pick up next week when we look at John chapter 3 and his um, encounter with Nicodemus, because it's a good uh, example of Jesus knowing what's in the heart of people, as John says there at the end of chapter 2. Let's, let's pray together, and then we'll dig into this and begin to explore how, does, how do these two stories reveal Jesus' glory and reveal the real Jesus to us. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you have given this word. We thank you that you came and you lived among us. You taught us both by your words and by your actions who you are, what you came to do. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us tonight. Send your spirit to open our hearts and our minds that we could understand and that we could worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I said, you know, at one level, these seem like kind of strange Signs And not only are they, is, is this first sign Cain and Galilee, Cain and Galilee is not an important place. So Jesus goes to an unimportant place uh, and does this miracle that really only the servants, who aren't very important people, and his mother, who's a woman and whose testimony can't even be used in a court of law, they're the only witnesses. And that's the first miracle, the first public miracle that Jesus does that reveals his glory. What it reveals is that Jesus is the Lord of the wine. In other words, Jesus is, Jesus is the Lord of the feast. And in, in, in doing a miracle at a wedding, Jesus is actually drawing on passages like we read at the call to worship in Isaiah chapter 25 that speak, there's so many passages in the Old Testament that speak about this coming feast that God will share with his people. And, and images of wine and great parties and, uh, and great banquet feasts are all through the Old Testament. And Jesus picks this occasion, not because it's in a really remarkably important place. Um, he picks this occasion because he wants to tap into those expectations and say, all that that was pointing to is, is fulfilled in me, who I am and what I'm doing. Now, to get at sort of how is Jesus' glory revealed, how is he revealed as the fulfillment of all these hopes and expectations, we need to ask a couple questions. The first is, what is the problem? What's going on that that causes a problem? 
They've run out of wine at the wedding feast. Why is that a big deal? Well, in these days, a wedding feast generally would last a week. It was a huge engagement socially, very important thing. It was a big deal, and to run out of wine would have brought tremendous embarrassment to the bridegroom and to the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet, I'll I'll tell you in a couple minutes, but he's basically a professional person that either gets hired or sometimes he gets voted at the beginning of the feast. The people there will vote on who should be the master of the banquet. And he's the person who's supposed to monitor the wine and keep the party going. He's Mr. Party Guy, right? And so the big deal is that if this guy, if they run out of wine at the wedding feast, not only will it produce tremendous social stigma for the family, the bridegroom and his family, it also, actually, there's, there's evidence from some Jewish writings of the time that this could be grounds for a lawsuit by the bride's family if they would embarrass uh, her, her family by running out of wine. It was a big deal, and particularly in a shame-based culture like the Middle East in the first century. Now, we live in a little different cultural situation. It, you would have understood this better 100 years ago than you would have today in our culture. But the idea that you just don't do something like this. If you've watched Jane Austen movies with my wife, you understand something about the societal pressure to not be a social embarrassment. But at one level, it's like nobody's in, 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 in danger of dying, I mean, at one level, it's a big deal, but at another level, you say, okay, how big a deal is it, really? Now, how does Mary get involved? Probably the fact that she's involved means that either the the wedding, the bridegroom is a close friend of the family, or possibly even a relative. We don't know, but the fact that Mary's involved means that she probably knows these people well, or she wouldn't be getting involved. But the guy who's in real trouble here is the master of the banquet. Then I said, he's kind of like the caterer and the master of ceremonies all rolled into one. He's the life of the party, and he's supposed to monitor the wine consumption, and he's blown it. He's blown it. And Jesus, by picking this occasion to exert his power, is tying into all these expectations and saying, all that this guy's supposed to be, I am. I am the one who is the life of the party. I'm the true master of the banquet. I can provide what Mr. Party Guy can't. What does Jesus say to Mary and why why does he say this? It's sort of a strange thing. She comes to him and by this point, Joseph seems to be out of the picture. Most scholars say he's probably died by this point. We don't know how. The Bible doesn't say. But it seems like a pretty ordinary thing for Mary to go to her firstborn son. She probably relies on him quite a bit by this point and says, they've run out of wine. And his answer is strange. He says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And I want to break that down so you understand just the significance of what he's saying. It's very important to understand this story, understand his response here. First, he says, woman. Now, this This word woman, I know the NIV tries to soften the abruptness of what he says, but it's a very abrupt thing. It's not exactly rude, but it's not the kind of thing you would say to your mother. It's not the kind of thing you would say to your mother. It's abrupt. And and, and then he goes on, he says, why do you involve me? 
And, and that phrase is even stranger to say to your mother because it's, it's a phrase that usually is used when you're wanting to put distance between you and somebody else. It's like saying, this has nothing to do with me. Leave me alone. Keep me out of this. And yet, I mean, if Mary's involved, her firstborn son probably is either related to the people or knows the people well. They're family friends. This is not you know, probably Mary's friends or Mary's relatives without being connected to Jesus. But he says, woman, why do you involve me? And then he says, even stranger, my hour has not yet come. And you go, uh, Jesus, nobody said anything about your hour. What are you talking about? All that's going on here is they've run out of wine. But Mary's response is really interesting. She says to the servants, do whatever he says. Now, what is going on here? What is going on here? How does his response, my hour has not yet come, and the abruptness of his words connect to what she's asked him to do? I think the, the, really the only explanation for the way Jesus responds to her is his mind is somewhere else. She comes to him, and it seems that she's interrupted something. She's disturbed him. And it seems that he's rather down. He's, he's brooding, if you will, about something. And, and that, that phrase, when he says at the end, my hour has not yet come, gives us a clue as to what he's thinking about. She comes to him and says, they've run out of wine. He says, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. What is his hour? In the Gospel of John, every time Jesus speaks about his hour, he is referring to the hour of his crucifixion. I listed some verses for you. You can look it up if you don't believe me. It's true. Jesus is sitting here at this wedding with all the celebration and the partying going on around him, and he's thinking about his crucifixion. Now, that's fascinating. When you're single, and most everybody here is single, and you go to a wedding, I know this is true of girls. Guys, if you don't know this is true of girls, you should learn this. Because if you ever take a girl to a date, as a date, to a wedding, it's, it's always interesting. Because when single people go to weddings, they always, especially girls, think about their wedding. Nobody just goes to a wedding and says, oh, isn't that nice? I don't know any girl that goes to a wedding and says, isn't that nice? Without connecting it to their own hopes and dreams and sadness. I know every time I perform a wedding that there are people there who have been married and are no longer married. There are people there who long to be married and have a good prospect, at least in the near future, of being married. There are other people there who long to be married who don't have any hope in the near future that they will be married. Weddings bring out all kinds of emotions, the height and the depth. And Jesus, just like any other real human person, because he is a real human person, is thinking about his own wedding. Which means he's thinking about the celebration that he knows is coming. Again, the celebration that I talked about and that we read about in Isaiah 25, this great banquet that's coming, this great wedding feast of the Lamb. And what is it going to take for Jesus to be able to celebrate with his guests at his wedding, with his bride, his hour? For Jesus to get to his wedding feast, he has to go to the cross. 
And he knows that even now. And he can't sit at a wedding without thinking about what it's going to take for him to celebrate his wedding feast one day. He's thinking about his death. The what, what he does and how he changes the water into wine proves that this is what he's thinking about. What does he do? He has the servants fill up ceremonial washing jars. It's very important. John includes that detail because it's an important detail. These are jars, big stone jars, 20 to 30 gallons of water that the Jews would use for ceremonial washing. But Jesus is saying that the old way of cleansing is gone. I'm bringing something new. These jars were used to ceremonially wash people to teach them about their need for cleansing from sin. Jesus says by this miracle, water won't do it. You need wine. Now that's a strange thing because wine is never used for purification or for washing in the Old Testament in Judaism. As a matter of fact, if you had any wine mixed with water, it would make the water impure and not appropriate or proper for cleansing. But Jesus is saying, the old is gone, the new has come. Cleansing will no longer be by ceremonial water, it will be by wine. The wine that later in his life, near the very end of his life, he will say this wine that we're about to drink is the blood of the new covenant shed for you for the remission of sins. And Jesus, even now at the beginning of his ministry with his first public miracle, is thinking about his death, thinking about what it will take to cleanse and to purify his bride, to make her spotless so that he can sit down and enjoy the wedding feast with her. What does this reveal about Jesus' glory? Well, lots, but a couple things I'll I'll point out tonight. First, he cares for people deeply. Now, you know, let's not lose lose sight of the fact that for the master of the banquet, all he knows, all he knows is that we've got good wine. We didn't run out. For For a while, it looked like we'd run out and his butt was in a sling. But all of a sudden, now he's been rescued. And that's not unimportant. We often sometimes think that, well, our real problem is sin. And that's all that Jesus really came to deal with. No, Jesus cares about social embarrassment. Jesus cares enough to relieve this guy from shame. Of course, he cares about something more. It would be pretty cold comfort if all Jesus did was went around and rescued people from social embarrassment without ever dealing with their sin. It's a good thing that he does more than that, but he doesn't do less. He doesn't not care for the, for the little, seemingly little things that really threaten to, to rob our joy. He cares for people deeply. And he cares enough to save a guy from social embarrassment who doesn't deserve it. A guy who's screwed up. But he's doing so much more. His glory is revealed in so much more. He's changing everything. The old way of washing is not enough, but yet the new way, now notice this, the new way that he's giving seems unclean. To people steeped in the Old Testament and to the rules and the way you do things, what he's providing as a new way doesn't really make any sense. As a matter of fact, it seems pretty scandalous, which is, of course, foreshadowing of something that will seem incredibly scandalous and yet will be God's way of providing cleansing. I mean, it would have seemed pretty strange to people to say, here, take a bath in wine that you may be cleansed. But no less strange than for somebody to say, 
Somebody who hung on a tree, even though the Old Testament says cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree, believe it or not, somebody who's hung on a tree, cursed by God, is going to be the answer, the answer to how we can be in a relationship with God. If you think it's strange that wine would be used for cleansing, how much stranger is it that blood and that one who was cursed, proven cursed by hanging on a tree in accordance with Scripture in Deuteronomy would be said to be the one who would cleanse us. Now, actually, you know, all the way through John chapter 1 through 4, this old is gone and the new has come imagery is going to run all through it. And I put a couple things down there. I won't go into it now, but you should you check that out. See how that theme goes through. You can use those the couple lines I put down there as a, as a guide as you think about that. But the, the real thing that gets me so excited about this passage is, is just thinking about this, that for Jesus to drink the cup of joy with us, he must drink the cup of God's wrath to the dregs, and he's willing to do that. It's, it's, he's willing to do that. Now, see, a lot of people, particularly in the first century, thought the fact that Jesus suffered proved that he couldn't be the all-glorious God, Jehovah. In actual fact, Jesus suffering when he didn't have to, in other words, suffering for sin he didn't commit is what proves and shows his glory greater than anything else. For Jesus to feast with us, for all of those promises and hopes of the expectations of the Old Testament to come true. And not only that, there weren't just hopes in the Old Testament, there were hopes in the Greek religions and the Greek mythology of Bacchus and all that he's supposed to provide and what true enjoyment is about. All that stuff to come true for the true fulfillment of of what you long for when you go to a really great party. There's something there that's drawing you deeper. Jesus says, I'm it. And yet, for Jesus to bring that about, to bring that fulfillment, he has to go to the cross. Tim Keller, um, pastor up in New York, says this way, the only way Jesus gets to his wedding day is through his hour. And he's willing to do this. One writer put it this way, and I love this. He says, what you see here, this picture of Jesus' glory is this. Jesus is sitting in the midst of all this joy, sipping the coming sorrow, so that you and I, who are sitting in the midst of all this sorrow, can sip the coming joy. Say that again. Jesus is sitting in the midst of all this joy all around him, and he's sipping his coming sorrow So that you and I can know that there is a day coming when, as Isaiah promised, every tear will be wiped away. See, you may know that passage from the book of Revelation. Did you know it really comes from Isaiah 25? And it's connected to this wedding feast and this great banquet and the great aged wine, which is good stuff. It's not weak, watered down stuff. It's good stuff. For that to happen... Jesus has to, has to die. And the fact that he does means that you and I can sit in the midst of the sorrow. And there is so much sorrow in this life. And yet, we can sip this coming joy because we know that the promises have been made and have been kept in Jesus. He died on a cross so that our future could be secured. There is a day coming 
that will come. There is no doubt of that because Jesus died to secure it. Therefore, we can sit in the midst of of sorrow, sipping this coming joy, tasting it. I mean, it's no, it's no accident that the Bible uses sensory language to speak about relationship with God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Why, why, why do we use wine instead of grape juice? Because you feel it going down. It burns. It does something to you. The Bible is not afraid of that sensory experience. As a matter of fact, it says you can't really understand the kingdom of God if you only understand it in your head. That's why God gives us sacraments and gives us pictures and gives us all kinds of things, stories, all that sort of stuff. Jesus makes tons of great wine. Think of it, 20 to 30 gallon jugs and six of them. More than they need for this feast. He's neither stingy nor opposed to great parties. And you know, sometimes I wonder, what was Jesus thinking in comparing the kingdom of God to a great party? Because I don't know very many Christians that feel like their experience of God in this life feels like a great party. But I'll tell you, I think the reason that we don't think it feels like a great party is because we're not overwhelmed by the fact that we've been invited. See, most of us have been brought up in church settings. Religious people, religious insiders, they don't really, they don't really get blown away when they get invited to the party. They think, well, of course I'm invited to the party. It wouldn't be a party if God didn't invite me. And, and, we, and, and you, do, you, don't really, you don't really enjoy a party nearly as much when you feel like, well, of course I was invited, as you do when somebody that you never dreamed would invite you says, come on in. You don't have any clothes? Don't worry, I'll provide those. Then you look around, you're like, whoa, how did I get here? If you don't, if you don't look around... you know, at at fellow believers and say, how did I get here? It's no wonder that you don't, that you don't understand the joy um, of the kingdom of God. And I struggle with it myself. I I pat myself all the time on the back and say, well, of course God needed me. He needed me. And then I wonder why the gospel is not very powerful sometimes. Well, let's look at this next, next little story. Because Jesus is the Lord of wine, but he's also the Lord of the whips. And in and a, a lot of ways, on the surface, these two episodes seem very different. They seem like opposites. But again, they're linked by verse 12. Jesus, the real Jesus, is revealed by both of these, and even more clearly when you see both of them together. But look first at some of the contrasts. Think about how different these two stories are. At the wedding, Jesus acts privately to keep the party going. But in the temple, he acts publicly and he makes everything stop. At the wedding, Jesus is asked to help. But at the temple, at the temple, he butts in where he's not invited. At the wedding, he comforts the disturbed. People are upset, and he brings comfort. He gives them what they want. At the temple, he disturbs the comfortable. At the wedding, he brings joy. But at the temple, he upsets everybody. But John, by linking these two stories together, is saying they're only, they only seem different. They really are, in fact, the same. Jesus is showing us his authority. He's, he's revealing what he came to do. And he's giving us a glimpse of what he's bringing in both of these stories. But the important point to notice in linking these two stories together is that sometimes he reveals his glory by filling your table. 
Sometimes he does it by turning your tables upside down and scattering everything you have all over the floor. It's true. How does Jesus show his authority? Well, at the wedding, we see it in the response that he makes to his mother. In effect, when he says, woman, why do you bother me? Why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. What he's saying is, woman, I will not, I will not be God on a leash. I will not do your bidding. Do not think that Jesus says, mother, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with this. And then he just kind of caves into her because he says, why do you involve me? And then he does what she wants. But he wants to make very sure that she understands, I will not be dictated to. I will not submit to anyone's agenda, even my own mother. And she understands that because the way she responds to him is, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. See, she comes to him as his mother in verse 5, but in verse 6, she takes the posture of a disciple. It's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. His authority is seen in that he will not allow himself to be a tool for anybody. He will not, he will not submit to anyone's agenda. We don't see his authority so clearly in that episode of the wedding feast because he does what we want. Sometimes we don't feel Jesus' authority when he gives us what we want or when things go the way we want them to go. We, but yet his authority is still active. It's still there. In the temple, it's more obvious, and we see it in a couple places. First, we see it when we think about what kind of whip he used. Now, I don't know if you were like me, but I remember Bibles like this Bible that Donnie has here. And if we looked at the picture, if there's a picture of the wedding feast or of the temple being cleansed, it'll probably show, you know, this long whip with the leather cords and the pieces of metal, you know, like the cat of nine tails kind of thing. That's not the whip that Jesus uses here. The, the, the language here says that he makes it out of reeds. Reeds are what you use to weave baskets. Jesus makes a whip out of limp reeds. He didn't hurt anybody with this whip. And yet everybody is driven out. But it's not, it's not so much, it's not as violent as, as I think a lot of our images of it are. Do you understand? There's a Roman legion in a fortress, directly looking down upon the temple. Their job is to intervene if riots or anything ever gets out of hand. And they don't get involved. This is not Jesus beating people around and drawing blood from his whip. He drives them out by the force of his personality and his gaze. Yeah, he knocks over some tables, certainly. But what really really gets these people, they come back to him and they say, explain to us where you get the authority. But they didn't argue with the authority. Do you understand? They felt his authority, but they asked him to explain where it came from. They asked him to justify it, but they have no doubt that it exists. They don't call in the Roman guard and say, we have this hoodlum, this terrorist in here upsetting everything. They recognize, they recognize he's a prophetic figure of some sort, and he has authority. We felt it. why everybody got up and ran. But we also see the, the, his authority and how he responds to them when they, when they say, do a sign or do a miracle to, to, to prove that you had the authority to do this. And he says, I won't give you a sign on demand. 
He says this consistently in his ministry. Jesus will not be a magician who just gives signs on demand. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. Which is basically saying, look, this is my father's house. This is, this is my house. Later, actually, I think what he really is saying is, I am this house. Nobody quite understood that's what he was saying at the time, but that's what he's saying. They say, where do you get off doing this? You act like you own this place. And basically, Jesus is saying, I am the place. I don't just own the place. I am the place. I am everything this place is about. This is about being reconciled to God and having communion with him, even though we've been separated by our sins. And so we have these animal sacrifices to cover over our guilt, and we're able to pray and worship and commune with God in a way that just gives us a bare foreshadowing of what is to come. And Jesus says, I'm it. I'm what is to come. So his authority is seen in both of these episodes. And you know, his authority is hard for us to deal with, isn't it? How often, how often have you said, God, I could obey you if only you tell me why. Or I could get through this if only you would tell me why. But do you understand, Jesus does not tell them why he does this. He doesn't tell them why he turns over the tables. The tables get turned over first, then there's a bit of an explanation. But he doesn't ask permission. He doesn't say, hey, I'm, I'm sorry I have to do this, but I really have to do this. I hope it's okay and I hope you, you know, will understand. No, he just turns over their tables. Have you experienced that? Jesus has authority to turn our lives upside down without asking our permission or even explaining why. If you don't understand that, if you don't agree with that, then I would submit to you that you don't know the real Jesus very well. Job is a great example of this. Do you realize that all the questions Job asks about why, he never gets an answer. But he does get a revelation of who God is that helps him, that allows him to trust. But he doesn't give an answer. He never gets let in on what went on between God and Satan. There's no evidence in the book that Job was ever told about that. It's worth thinking about. But here's the point. Jesus Jesus shows that God has authority. Jesus has authority, and he doesn't have to explain it to us. When Jesus overturns our tables, the first lesson is he has a right to do it. And, you know, here's the thing. So often people say, well, I'm mad at God because he's, he's done this or he hasn't done this. And it's like you can't really have it both ways. If Jesus has the ability, if he's great enough to fill your table, he must be great enough that he can have a reason for turning your tables upside down that maybe you wouldn't even understand. If he's great enough to be mad at him because you recognize he's sovereign over what's happened, then why is it so hard to believe he could be great enough that he could have a reason that may be beyond your ability to understand? Jesus also reveals what he came to do. He came to die on a cross. Again, you see this in the wedding episode, but how do you see it in the temple episode? And to this, you have to ask, why does he get mad? Why does he get mad? There is no evidence that Jesus is a proto-socialist, communist, revolutionary, that these people are ripping people off. No evidence whatsoever. They actually were providing a useful service. People would come from all over to the temple for Passover. They didn't have 
the right currency to be able to offer their temple tax. They didn't have the animals, the unblemished animals they need. This was, this was a proper and appropriate and okay situation that was going on here. There's no evidence that Jesus is upset that people were getting ripped off. That's not what's going on here. What Jesus says and what the disciples remember and realize when, they, when he does this is that this place is supposed to be a house of prayer. What Jesus is objecting to is there's so much freaking racket going on that the point of this place is getting lost. It's not enough to just come and do your religious duty. You're supposed to reflect on what's going on when the sacrifices are taking place. You're supposed to have that be an opportunity for you to reflect on who God is and what He's done and His provision for His people and pray and worship Him. And yet, with all this noise and all this racket, you can't pray, you can't reflect. All you can do is do your religious duty. And Jesus never wants relationship with God to be about fulfilling your religious duties. It's so tragic how often, how often God's people get caught up in so much religious activity and noise and busyness that they never have time to reflect and they never have time to pray. But that's what's going on here. Jesus says, listen, I want to focus you on the gospel. The sacrificial system was preaching the gospel to God's people. And he's saying, I want you to focus on that. And I'm so concerned for that, that that my zeal for that consumes me. And quite literally, his zeal for that will consume him. Because he will go to his very death so that this So that this hope that the temple embodies of relationship with God can be realized. Finally, he gives us a glimpse of what he's going to bring and what he does bring, which is this restored relationship with the father. It's what the ceremonial washing jars were about. It's what the sacrifices of the temple are about. And here's the point. Again, the temple authorities come say, you walk in here like you own the place. And he says, own the place. I am the place. I am the temple. And two applications in closing on this. First, beware of getting so busy that you miss the point, that I miss the point. Jesus didn't die so that we could fill our lives up with religious activity and duties and programs. He didn't die so that you and I can keep ourselves so busy that we neglect prayer. And you have to ask yourself, you have to be willing to ask yourself, am I too busy? And sometimes... When Jesus turns things upside down, he may, be, he may be, well, of course he's doing it in love. Here's the thing, whether he's filling your table, doing what you want or doing what you don't want, he's always doing it because he loves you and because he wants to draw you back and focus you on the gospel. Third, last point, inviting Jesus into your life means he gets to rearrange things. And, and I love, love this quote, Tim Keller put this, I think this is so, so great. He says, in Eastern cultures, where the path to spirituality is defined as through self-denial, basically cut things out of your life, deny all kinds of things, that's how you get more spiritual. In those cultures, they can understand the temple Jesus who wants to get rid of stuff. But they don't understand the wedding, wedding Jesus who wants to bring life and life abundantly and bring a great party and make great wine. And I would suggest to you, submit to you, that the Southern Christian religious culture 
in America is very much like that Eastern culture. We understand the temple Jesus who's mad at people. That's the Jesus we tell people about all the time. He's mad at you for this, he's mad at you for that, and he gets really upset if you're enjoying things too much. Maybe we need to understand the wedding Jesus who comes and says, man, this party's going pretty good, but you haven't seen anything yet. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make the best of wine, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna make more than we need. Do you, ever, you think of Jesus as somebody who's lavish and even wastes, if I can use that word reverently, wastes good wine? He says, you know, in the East, and I would say in the South, people understand the temple Jesus, but not the wedding Jesus. In our selfish, me-first, narcissistic culture, we can understand the wedding Jesus. That's the Jesus we want. But we don't understand the temple Jesus, who says that all that good stuff you have is getting in the way of what really matters. But he's both. He's both. Let him be who he really is. And remember that Jesus fills your tables and turns your tables over for the very same reason, because he loves you. Worship him. I put on the back of this little blue paper two different hymns, which I think bring this out. I'm not going to read them because we're out of time. We always try and end here at 9.15. But the first one, I ask the Lord that I might grow, is really about the temple Jesus. I asked the Lord that I might grow, and he came and he ripped me to shreds. And I didn't understand that, but then I came to understand that. That's what that first hymn is about. The second hymn, Come Ye Disconsolate, is the temple Jesus. Jesus comforting the disturbed. But here's the, here's the thing. Christianity is about both of these things at the same time because the real Jesus says both of these things and does both of these things. And, and you can't just say, well, I'll only, I'll only believe in Jesus if he's this, or I'll only believe in Jesus if he's this. We have to let Jesus be who he is and come to love him and worship him and and trust him, whether he's filling your tables or turning your tables over, because that's who he is and that's what he does. And I can't say I wish it were otherwise. I'm glad it's this way, because I know me and I know you and we need both. We need both. If Jesus only ever turned our tables over, we we would despair, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't test us beyond what we can endure, the Bible promises. And he understands what you can endure better than you do. He does. But he also, he also knows that we need our tables turned over more than we want. And he loves us so much, he's willing to risk you misunderstanding what he's doing. Because he is committed to completing the good work he began in you. Sometimes he fills your table, sometimes he turns your tables over, but he's always committed to that purpose, and he won't back down. That's good news, but it's also a bit frightening at times. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us courage to follow you. We thank you that you come after us even when we don't have courage. We thank you that you don't ask our permission And yet, Lord, we are such weak people. We run from your authority. We run from reflecting on what you're doing. We try and fill our lives with busyness and noise so that we don't have to think about what you might be doing in our lives. Forgive us, Lord, and make us... Forgive us, but also, Lord, help us to not be so foolish. Help us to stop and to ask, what are you doing? And help us to see 
the gospel, your love, your commitment to make us a pure spotless bride through filling our tables and through turning our tables over. Help us to see that and trust you that you are committed to a good purpose for your people. Help us to encourage one another, not with the silly flattery that we so often engage in, but with the real encouragement that we have a Jesus who loves us and is committed to making us holy and spotless. And may we worship you for who you really are, even when we don't understand what you're doing. May our worship never be limited to what we can understand. How foolish that would be. Deliver us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.